what's your impossible dream? You probably have one, right? For some of you, it's probably buried deep down inside because you don't want to admit it because it's just that impossible. You know what I'm talking about? What's your impossible dream? I uh, grew up with some pretty impossible dreams as a young man. Uh, this was illustrated for me, actually, this Christmas. My mom, as my Christmas present, gave me the childhood memories book that she put together when I was a little man. So it's interesting. If you have one of those books, you know that they tend to be very busy, JK through, I don't know, grade six, and then they begin to taper off. Well, my book is no exception. What's cool about it is the pages are kind of like pouches, and so into each pouch you can put report cards and pictures and crafts that I did. And on the back, there's space to fill out things about me, things I liked doing, things I was interested in. And most importantly, there's a section that says what I want to do when I grow up. And back as early as junior kindergarten, it says that Todd wants to be a pilot and a preacher, just like Daddy, when he grows up. And you can see that theme of Air Force pilot and preacher of the gospel carry through all of my childhood. When I was a boy, I dreamed of growing up to fly fighter jets and to preach the gospel. I dreamed of one day driving a Porsche 911 and of marrying a glorious 40-something wife. Um, I would dream of driving that beautiful car with that beautiful woman next to me and working our way down the coastal highway in California. I uh, literally dated with a 40-year-old wife in mind. Uh, I would be dating a 17-year-old girl and thinking, what's she going to be like in her 40s? And uh, by God's grace, I was fortunate to marry a girl who turned into a glorious 40-something wife. I also dreamed of being Steven Spielberg and Billy Graham. At 11 years of age, I was captivated by the ministry of Billy Graham, and I was captivated by the work of Steven Spielberg. His movies even came to Israel. You've never seen a movie until you've seen a movie in downtown Jerusalem in the 80s. It's mayhem. There was one theater in the whole city, and so when E.T. came to town, it was something else. Um, Israelis, by nature, are fairly vivacious. They tend to not overly discipline their children. Um, part of the cultural nuance in Israel is that um, those children, boys and girls, grew up to serve in the Israeli army. And many of them, of course, in the early years of the Jewish state were tending to die in the many conflicts that were constantly part of life as usual in Israel. And so there's a movement in Israeli culture to let the little ones enjoy their life because God knows when we're going to lose them. And so you end up with very out-of-control six-year-olds in Israel. So you're kind of watching E.T., but kind of watching little Yitzhak run across the stage as his father chases him screaming, right? Israel's a crazy place. But the work of Spielberg reached us even in Israel. And I remember just sitting there going, someday I want to do that. I dreamed of growing up to be Steven Spielberg meets Billy Graham. Here's the point. Some dreams come true, some don't. So keep dreaming. How many of you know the difference between some dreams come true, some don't, so keep dreaming, and some dreams come true, some don't, so why bother dreaming? Very different perspectives. I am learning to embrace a resolutely positive and optimistic outlook on life because that is what I see in the story of God and his people as recorded in the Bible, and this year, that is what I particularly see as recorded in the story of our friend Joseph, beginning with the first verse of Genesis chapter 37. Now look, if you've never been here for the Patriarch series, I read the entire chapter that we're focusing on that day. So make yourself comfortable, and next week maybe stow an extra coffee under your seat, and this is the moment where you pull it out. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers, he was a boy with the sons of Bilchah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. 
Now Israel, which is Jacob's other name, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, "Um, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, His brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And Joseph said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? It must have been a very big flock, right, that everybody would know. Oh, yeah, Israel's flock is over there. Um, please tell me, where are they pasturing the flock? The man said, They've gone away, for I have heard them say, Let us go to Dotan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dotan. Dotan was a region even north, further north, north um, northwest of Shechem. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben, he was the firstborn, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him in a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. These pits they're talking about were water cisterns. So they threw him in an empty water cistern. Then they sat down to eat, callous buggers, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Joseph said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. He'll be much kinder if we just sell him into slavery. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in it, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to the underworld, to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. 
And so begins our trip through the very famous story of Joseph. If you uh, went to Sunday school as a kid, you'll have heard the Joseph story. It's one of the famous stories. If you like Broadway shows, you'll know of the version of his story called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Not exactly biblically accurate. I played Gad in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, so I know firsthand that it leaves somewhat to be desired. But welcome to Joseph's story. It's a personal story. It's a story that is so personal, in fact, that I believe it is safe for you to apply the truths and the teachings of this very personal story to your personal life. But let me tell you first about Genesis so far. All right, you may not have been here for the last three years, so a little introduction to this very famous book. Genesis, nobody knows who wrote it. Nobody. You're like, Moses wrote it. Yes, traditionally, that is what we believe. But nobody knows for real who wrote the book of Genesis. Traditionally, scholars have ascribed the authorship to Moses, and if you know the story of God and his people, it makes a lot of sense that Moses may have written it. And in fact, the content reflects Moses' character and point of view. So I, as a Bible-preaching pastor who loves you and reveres Jesus, come to this assuming that the tradition is accurate, that Moses wrote this book, but we are not 100% sure. It rounded into its final form sometime in the late 500s BC. So this is a very, very old book. The late 500s BC was nearing the end of the dynasty of King David. And this book, or the stories in this book, had been popularized during King David's reign as the people of Israel kind of settled into having a kingdom of their own, finally. They were settling into actually having inherited the promised land. So for the 400 years between the 900s BC and the 500s BC, these stories were circulating throughout Israel, doing two things in particular, encouraging them, that they were in this land by rights, that this was the land promised to their forefathers. And when they found themselves in difficulty, for example, in the late 500s BC, when they were exiled, many of them, into Assyria and Babylon, we covered this when we preached through the book of Ezra recently, as they would have found themselves exiled in these foreign lands, these stories from what would eventually become the book of Genesis would have encouraged them that one day God would bring them home. Because if he brought our first parents home from captivity in Egypt to the promised land that we've been exiled from, that we used to rule, one day we will come back. This is the principal use of the book of Genesis during the time of the Davidic dynasty. It would have been of great encouragement to the citizens of David's kingdom. Genesis is the story of God and his people. Genesis is a story of beginnings and of generations. Okay, it's obsessed with the way in which God's relationship with his people tracks through history in the context of family, in the context of generations. Genesis is the story of creation, sin, and recreation. In January of 2017, year one, we went from creation through to the Tower of Babel. We discovered how all things were made good by a good God, and then all things fell as a consequence of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. All things were made good, and then all things fell. In year two, beginning January 2018, we met Abraham and Sarah, and we discovered what it looks like to be God's friend. In year three, beginning in January 2019, we met Isaac and Rebecca, and we told the story of their love story as well as the love story of the forgotten brother Esau. And we saw how God's love worked its way into their broken love story. And I was hoping to show you how God's love can work his way into your broken story also. This year, year four, I want to invite you to learn to dream with Joseph. And to do that, 
I want to highlight for you 14 keystone habits from Joseph's story that I believe as you learn to embrace them will help you live like the impossible dream is coming true for you because of Jesus. But to do that, I better tell you right off the top what a keystone habit is. A keystone habit is a small change or a habit that people introduce into their routines that unintentionally carry over into other aspects of their lives. Keystone habits create a domino effect that change every area of your life. That's from Charles Duhigg in The Power of Habit, one of my absolutely favorite books. I read it at least once a year. If you're looking to introduce some new habits in your life or looking to conquer some bad ones, go run, don't walk, and buy that book and start reading it this week. So, 14 keystone habits. Week one, keystone habit number one, dare to dream and pay the price. All right, that's keystone habit number one. Dare to dream and pay the price. Here's the um, big idea for you today. Here's what I want to invite you to do. I want you to think about what it looked like for Joseph to dare to dream. So as we work through Genesis chapter 37, try and fixate on what it looked like for Joseph to dare to dream so that you might imagine what it might look like for you. Okay, it's an intensely personal story. Look at what it meant for him to dare to dream and try and pull that into your very modern life to see what it might look like for you to dare to dream. Also, consider the price that Joseph had to pay and maybe ask yourself, how does that help me make sense of the price I find myself having to pay? These are the two jobs I want to invite you to do with today's sermon. Why? Because life is going to keep being hard, so you might as well keep daring to dream while paying the price, just like in verse 2. What's interesting in uh, the first section here, verses 2 through 4, we meet Joseph. We hear that these are the generations of Jacob. So that's a device in Genesis where we kind of turn the page. So we've been focused on Isaac and Rebekah and Esau. Turn the page. These are the generations of Jacob. So now this is the story of Jacob's family. And then we don't really say much more about Jacob there. We begin immediately speaking about Joseph, who is the hero of this story. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. Joseph, being 17. Joseph is the hero of this story. This is Joseph's story that we are embarking on here. He is the protagonist. It's interesting that he's 17. Okay, he's at that age that y'all are at where your life is just kind of beginning. He's 17. He's at the front edge of learning what it means to dream and learning how to deal with the pain that comes with daring to dream. But he is the hero of this story. And I want to use that fact to remind you that you are the hero of your story. Just like Joseph had to learn to dare to dream, you have to learn to dare to dream for yourself. Do you find yourself sometimes trying to borrow the dreams of others? In today's heightened social media age, it's very easy to attach ourselves to the dreams of others. We see other people doing things that we think are spectacular. We think that somehow we can connect to someone else's dreams, forgetting all the while that we are the hero of our own story. You are the protagonist of your story. You need to learn to dream for yourself. Joseph is the hero of this story. Who was Joseph? He was the favorite son. Wouldn't it be nice to be the favorite son? I think my younger brother was my parents' favorite son. I wouldn't say that publicly, but I just did. It's okay. I accept it. The favorite son. He's a bit of a tattletale. Notice he's in the field with his brothers. They're guarding the sheep, and he brings home a bad report to his father. It's important to note, in the original language, it says he brought home a report of their grumbling. So you can bet he would have said, well, if they weren't grumbling, I wouldn't have said anything about it. But nonetheless, he's a bit of a pain in the neck. You know, like the pain in the neck sibling? 
don't say anything, my children, but you have that pain in the next sibling. You're like, they're always bringing a bad report. Well, they shouldn't be bringing a bad report, but you shouldn't be doing anything that would cause them to bring a bad report also. This is Joseph. His brothers hated him. So let me just say off the top, I recognize the fact that Joseph's story is not your story, okay? There's not a one-to-one corollary between their two stories, right? He has his story, you have your story, that's okay. But don't forget, you have a story, and you are the protagonist. If you're going to dare to dream, you need to own your own story, which, reducing verses 5 to 11 to one very general concept, is going to require conviction and confession, Okay, what happens in verses 5 through 11? Joseph has two crazy narcissistic dreams. Dream one, a sheaf of wheat that belongs to him. They're harvesting wheat. His sheaf stands up. And then all his brother's sheaves that they've been harvesting stand up also and bow down to his sheaf. And is it any surprise that his brothers are not very impressed with this? Then, to add insult to injury, he has another dream. This time, the sun, the moon, the stars, and 11 brothers are bowing down to him. You're like... That's offensive. And that's exactly how his family felt. Joseph has these crazy narcissistic dreams. And what is the result? Verse 8. So they, his brothers, hated him even more. Notice this. For his dreams and for his words. Okay, this rocked my world when I came to this in the text. They hated him for his dreams. What do his dreams represent? His dreams here represent his thoughts. Okay, his inner conviction. It's important for you to know that in Genesis, when we read about somebody having a dream, in the original language, it means like God spoke to them. This is not something weird in the pizza that they ate last night, that they had a strange dream. Okay, this is God speaking to them. So when God speaks, most of the time, we pay attention, yes? Have you ever had that sense like God is speaking to me? Maybe it wasn't writing on the wall like we read in the Bible, or maybe you didn't see an angel, or he didn't speak to you audibly, but you've had that undeniable sense that God is giving you instruction. How many of you know when God speaks, we listen? Okay, so this is what's happened to Joseph here. God has spoken to him in a dream, and because of that, he has a deeply held conviction. This is what his dreams represent. They hated him for his convictions. They hated him for his thoughts, but they also hated him for his words. Okay, his words here is very important. Represent bringing his convictions to life by voicing or confessing them. They hated him not just for what he thought, but they hated him for what he said. Here's a question that I hope smacks you right upside the head in a loving way. How many of you have unconfessed dreams? A dream that God's put in your heart that you've never told any about, anybody about because it seems ridiculous to you. Anybody, don't show me your hand. But I'm sure there are people in this room with unconfessed dreams. If you're going to dare to dream, you're going to need to bring your conviction to life by confessing it. I mean, somebody ought to shout there. Right? If you're going to dare to dream, you need to bring your conviction to life by confess. Ooh, that could preach good. You're going to have to confess it. You're going to have to say it. Okay? I have been learning to do this over the past three years here at Grace. Now, let me just go out. Can I go off book here for a second? Just for one second. Well, if you don't let me, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do it anyway. Okay? Make sure you have a dream that is so scary and so big that you cannot accomplish it. It is only when you have a dream that is so scary and so big that you cannot accomplish it that you will be driven to confess that dream publicly so that God might fulfill it. So why has Todd said things throughout the years like we're going to have this many people in church by this date and we're going to have this much money by this date? Ask anybody who's been here for the last three years. I've gotten in trouble again and again and again for daring to confess things like we will have 300 people in this church by Christmas 2018. Guess how many people we had in this church by Christmas 2018? 300 plus. 
This year, I was like, I didn't learn my lesson. I'm like, how many people are we going to have in this church by Christmas, December 19? 400 people. How many people are at our Christmas service? 424. You're like, why do you keep doing this? Because it keeps coming true. I'm not comfortable doing it, but I know that I must bring my convictions to life by confessing it, which means to risk ridicule and to risk those dreams going unfulfilled because I was somehow out of alignment with God's will and I was asking something that he was never going to bring to light anyway. But I don't know the mind of God. I believe that these convictions have been placed in my heart by God, so I'm going to act in faith because anything that is not from faith is sin, and so I will walk by faith and not by sight, and I will confess my conviction. If you want to ask me how many people I'm praying for, maybe you can, no, I'm going to tell you. I'm now praying for a thousand people. Okay, and you're like, when does it stop? Never. Why? Because the gospel needs to go into all the world so that all may taste and see that the Lord is good. So um, let's get in the habit of confessing our convictions. And um, if you're going to dare to dream, you're also going to need to be available. This is what happens in verse 13. Um, So Joseph's brothers are off pastoring the flock, his father says to him, hey, would you mind going to check on them? And he said to his father, here I am. Please note that Joseph is willing to go on a 50-kilometer wilderness hike alone in a land that had mountain lions during that age of the world to go find his older brothers who hate him. Sure, pops, sounds like a good idea. Here I am. That's a very good attitude to have. Okay, I said to our worship team before we came out on the stage for this service, I said, you need to make yourself available to God to work great exploits. Even if you don't feel ready, you need to say, here I am. Use me, Lord, as a tool deployed in your hand for your glory, the joy of your people, and through their transformed lives, the good of the world. Friend, are you making yourself available? If you're going to dare to dream, you're going to need to be available to do your father's bidding. Somebody say something. You need to be available to do your father's bidding. And you're going to need to really commit. This is my favorite point in the whole sermon. This occurs in verses 17 through 20. He goes to find his brothers. They see him coming from afar. Why? Probably because of his brightly colored cloak. It's important to note that in the original language, it doesn't actually say a coat of many colors. It just says a fancy coat. And so some translators think that means a coat with long sleeves, which is rare at the time. Other translators tend to think it's a cloak of many colors. You can see which side we land on. I think it was probably a cloak of many colors. Either way, the brothers see him coming. They're like, quick, let's kill him. Let's kill him and throw him in a pit. And here's the important part. And we will see what becomes of his dreams. They say, here comes this dreamer. This, I hope this sentence echoes in your heart all week. Here comes this dreamer. Wait for it in the Hebrew. Hine ba'al ha'chalomot ba. Hine ba'al ha'chalomot ba. Look, here comes the husband of the dreams. What did I just tell you? If you want to dare to dream, you're going to need to commit. How many of you know that once you marry somebody, you're pretty committed? It doesn't say, look, here comes, receive it. It doesn't say, look, here comes the dreamer of the dreams. It says, look, here comes the husband of the dreams. Spouse level commitment is the price you have to pay if you're going to dare to dream. Somebody ought to shout in this house. Is that not good or is that good? Okay, you need to let me know it's good. That's good. Talk. Woo! You can just wave at me. If you're shy to shout, you just just go, "Mm," like this, like a woman in Alabama. "Mm." I had a woman in my church in Toronto. She used to stand up. I'd get going. She'd just stand up. She stood right there. Stand, she just do this. All right? Let me know. Spouse level commitment 
is what's required. That's the price you're going to have. How many of you know how hard it is to be married? Somebody wave at me. Very difficult. Okay? That is how hard it's going to be for you to dare to dream. This is why so many people never dare to dream because they don't want to do spouse-level commitment kind of work. How many of you know your dreams aren't coming true because you're not committed? You're welcome. If you feel called to write a book, by God, write it. If you feel called to enhance your health, do some deadlifts. I hate deadlifts, but I've been doing them religiously with my son, Sam, who out deadlifts me to my very great shame. He's deadlifting 255, and I'm doing 205. I'm like, oh, help me, Jesus. Okay? Why do I do deadlifts? Hear me, church. Because nobody else is going to do them for me. Right? If you want a happy marriage, lay your life down. This is the most popular and unpopular bit of advice you could ever give to anyone whose marriage is struggling. Why is it popular? Because it's like very good advice and it really works. Lay your life down. That's the key to a successful marriage. Why is it unpopular? Because nobody wants to do it. Right? Laying your life down. It's very unpopular advice, but it is the only advice that works. And guess what? Again, nobody's going to lay your life down but you. Somebody shout at me. Right? Nobody's going to lay your life down but you. You want to build a successful business? You've got to risk everything. And then you have to work 60-hour weeks. Am I right? That is what's required. You want to be godly? It means to live counterculturally. Nobody wants to do it. Nobody's going to do this but you. And as you embark on this journey, lots of people will doubt you. Verse 20. And Are you liking this this morning? This is better than first service. Whew, thank you, Lord. Okay? Lots of people will doubt you. How do I know? Verse 20. Oh, we're going to kill him, throw him in a pit, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. Ha, ha, ha. Let's see what becomes of this husband of the dreams when we cut his throat and cast him in a pit. Friends, lots of people will doubt you. Ever had anybody try to crush you? I mean, wave at me if somebody ever tried to crush you at work or try to crush you in a personal relationship. Why do people try to crush you? Because they're evil. Why are people evil? Because sin is real. Okay, sin is real, and people are really jealous, and they see you as an opponent, and they want to crush your soul. So listen, patiently enduring the unjustified hatred of others is part of the price you have to pay if you want to dare to dream. There's no way around it. You cannot escape it. So don't let it steal your joy when it happens. Just go, oh yeah, Pastor Todd this is, said this is part of the journey. All right, and I believe it because I read it myself. Yes, Lord. Help me through this one step at a time. People will lie to you. You notice that Jacob's rotten brothers, after they sold Joseph into slavery, they tear up his cloak, they dip it in an animal's blood, they send it home to their dad, like, Dad, we found this coat. We don't know whose it is. Maybe you can identify it. Scum of the earth. Lying to their dad. He's like, it's my son's cloak. Surely an animal has torn him to pieces. People will lie to you, just like Joseph's brothers lied to their father. And sometimes the consequences of the things people do to you will leave you feeling inconsolable. Please notice that Jacob is inconsolable in verses 33 through 35. He mourned for his son many days, and all his sons and daughters arose to try and comfort him, but he would not be comforted. He said, no, I will go down to Sheol. I will go down to the underworld mourning for my son inconsolable, but I am a gospel-preaching 
pastor who loves you and adores Jesus. And so I get to say to you this morning that Jacob suffered from an incorrect worldview. He was wrong about the underworld. In Judaism at that time, they had a very underdeveloped view of eternity. They thought that when you died, you went to the world beneath the world. That's why they called it being gathered to your fathers. That's why they buried you in tombs where they left your bodies lying on beds and then when your skin had rotted away, they collected your bones and put them underneath the beds with the bones of all those who had predeceased you and they believed that you were now an inhabitant of the shady, dark, and grimy world beneath the world. But I'm here to tell you this morning that they got it wrong, friends. Death and despair and the empty places beneath the earth are not your destiny because of Jesus who after he had died in your place for your sins did not stay dead and did not go for long to the the underworld he descended unto hell and did what preached the gospel to the spirits in prison after which he what arose again victorious defeating in his body the power of satan sin death and hell forever friends death is not the end the story continues and worship team you can join me on stage because i'm almost done i'll say it again the story continues and our text bears this out. Verse 36. This is a very, very important word. Verse 36. Meanwhile. Meanwhile. The Midianites had sold Joseph into Egypt to Potiphar. Woohoo! The leader of who? Of Pharaoh's personal guard. Meanwhile, I'm here to shout it from the rooftops that Joseph wasn't dead. He was in Egypt. Yes, he was sold as a slave. Sure, in Potiphar's house, the captain of Pharaoh's guard where the story continues. Here's my question to you this morning because I love you. What's your meanwhile looking like these days? What's your meanwhile looking like these days? Can I tell you about my meanwhile? I, I happen to know a guy who thought he'd be flying jet fighters then uh, driving home in his 9-11 to his mansion in the Hollywood Hills. Meanwhile, he's preaching the gospel, married to a glorious 40-something wife, working in the tradition of great preachers like Billy Graham, though never quite rising to their level. And uh, even though Guelph is definitely not Hollywood, he is resolutely optimistic about his life. Why? Because he keeps daring to dream and paying the price. And so as you own your own story... As you bring your conviction to life by confessing it, as you make yourself available to do your father's bidding, as you really commit like a wife or a husband to doing the work, as you learn to endure unjustified hatred and to embrace the consolation that is yours in Christ, as you do these things, may your meanwhile become meaningful as you dare to dream and pay the price. 